Revive is the co-mission festival, a festival for everyone. A manifold mix of Londoners united in Christ coming together for one big weekend with co-mission family. It's for late night ravers, early morning risers, sit and have a cuppa in the deck chair relaxers. It's for those who like singing in a tent with a thousand or sitting around the barbecue chatting with three. There's five-a-side tournaments, 5K runs, at least five different ways to order your coffee. There's food trucks, fire pits, fireworks, and fun to be had from sunrise to way past your bedtime. But the highlight? Life-changing teaching from the Word of God that excites us, edifies us, equips us to live and speak for Jesus in London, whatever our age, wherever we're from. And so why get in the car and crawl down to Canterbury on a hot June afternoon? Because we're a family, we're a movement, together on a mission to make disciples of all nations for Christ in this multi-layered metropolis that is London. And Revive brings us together. It strengthens us and spurs us on so that we're ready to go. Join us at Revive 2019 from the 21st to the 23rd of June with guest speakers Kevin DeYoung and Ephraim Buckle. For more and to book your tickets, go to commission.org slash revive. Welcome to the Commission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching and conversations from across the Commission Network. With Revive on our minds here at Commission, we've decided to delve into the archives of previous years. And today we've got a big top talk from 2016. Our guest speaker that year was Don Carson, president of the Gospel Coalition, and the theme was eternity. In this talk, Don Carson was looking at Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding banquet. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now today, I want to begin with a rather extended introduction, and I shall start with something rather tangential to our passage, Um, so you will need to exercise your patience. We'll get to this parable in due course. Hang in there. Yesterday, I briefly mentioned my sister, Joyce, who served for a while in Papua New Guinea in a tribe that was pre-Stone Age. Now, suppose that one of those tribals was taken out and brought to your home. Suppose, too, that you are an expert in linguistics, and for the next five years that tribal, who knows no word of English, is interacting with you such that you are learning the language. Until a generation ago, these tribals had no part of their language written down. But you're an expert in linguistics and phonics and so forth. You you hear their sounds and gradually, gradually you learn the language. You you even break it down to form a new alphabet and and gradually make a little primer and, and, and you become skilled in the language. After five years, you can speak it quite fluently. And then suppose that you have the assignment of being dropped back into that tribal area 40 years ago, pre-Stone Age in technology, with its own limited vocabulary, you have the responsibility now of explaining to them in their language electricity. And you're not allowed to bring any aids with you, any flash like torches or microwaves or anything like that. You, you, you just have to explain it in their language. What will you say? I have come to tell you, you say in their language, a Neo-Melanesian tongue, I, I have come to, to explain to you, um, you don't have a word for it, let's make one up, let's call it electricity. Electricity is, um, it's like a powerful spirit that runs along hard things like vines. These aren't really vines. They're, they're things that we make in very, very large large mud huts that we call factories. In, in these large mud huts, we, we make things. And one of the things we make is these hard things like vines. And then we, we loop them from tree to tree. Well, actually, sometimes we cut down the tree, take off all the branches, dig a hole in the ground, put it in, and loop. No, it just gets looped from tree to tree. 
And then it comes in the thatched roof of our own mud huts into little round things that are inside the thatch roof. And we pump in this electricity at one end that gets looped through the hard things like vines and sent along this vinish thing into our mud huts and that little round thing in the ceiling of the thatch lights up like a little sun so you can stay up late at night. I don't know why you'd want to, but if, if you want to, you can st stay up late at night. And it goes into other, well, they're sort of squarish things with round things on top. And the electricity goes lickety-split around those roundish things and, until they heat up. It's, it's like a fire without any smoke. So you, don't long, you no longer have to use the, the design for, for the huts that are everywhere in, in, in Papua New Guinea, where the thatch comes up to a hole in the ceiling so the smoke can get out. You can fill up the hole, no more smoke. And, and you can heat the water in your clay pots and, 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 and make it very hot without, without smoke. How am I doing in explaining electricity? Now, so far, I've said nothing about um, AC and DC. I've not talked about the atomic nature of matter, so we can talk about the flow of electrons. I haven't mentioned any of the units of measurement, volts and amps and ohms and so forth. I haven't talked about power generation or power storage. I certainly haven't talked about um, semiconductors, the old tubes, and then transistors, and then microchips. And you can't talk about the significance of microchips unless you explain something of Boolean algebras. I haven't explained Boolean algebras to them. They don't have a numeric system that, that is base 10 like we do. And, and, and then on top of that, uh, uh, I haven't talked about the digital world and what it means for communication. It's, what's the matter with these people? Are they stupid or something? No, of course not. If they emigrate for any reason to the Western world, their children will do as well as our children in school. What's the problem with them? The problem is they have no experience of this world, and therefore they don't have an adequate vocabulary, they don't have an adequate imagination for these things, but there's no intrinsic defect in their brains, it's just they have no exposure to these things. And trying to explain these things without experience of them means that I'm reduced to using metaphors and similes. Uh, electricity is uh, like a spirit. It's running through hard things like vines. It, it, it goes into round things. Uh, mud huts, uh, factories are like mud huts and, and, and so forth. Do, do you see? That, that's the best I can do. So tell me, how are you going to describe the throne room of God? Our experience of God is so abysmally pathetic that we don't have the imagination or the vocabulary without using endless metaphors and parables and similes. That's one of the reasons why the apocalypse that is, the apocalyptic literature that is the last book of the Bible has so many symbols in it. It's why the Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 12, can talk about himself in the third person as someone who is caught up. He says, to the third heaven. Well, in Jewish talk, the first heaven is the atmosphere through which the birds fly. The second heaven is what we call the visible universe, stars, galaxies, planets, whatever. And the third heaven is the abode of God. So he's called up to the abode of God. And he sees things, he says, in paradise. Jews in the first century commonly spoke of three paradises. The first paradise, the perfection of Eden. The last paradise, the new heaven and the new earth. And right now, the hidden paradise, wherever God is. So he's caught up to the very presence of God, and he says he saw things there that cannot be spoken of, 
And by that expression, he means both that he's not allowed to talk about them and that in any case, he doesn't have the words to talk about them because he's had the experience and we haven't. So how shall we talk about heaven? How shall we talk about the new heaven and the new earth? Part of our problem when we think of heaven is that is that we've been constrained by silly line diagram cartoons. I'm sure everybody in this tent has seen these pictures that are meant to depict heaven where somebody's wearing a puffy white nightgown, sitting on a puffy cloud, playing a harp, and that's supposed to depict heaven. But if that's our idea of heaven, good gracious, I, I'm not sure I want to live there very long. I mean, everybody enjoys a harp, one of those great big funny-looking shaped things with pedals on the bottom and lots of strings, and you pull it back between your, your, your legs, and every decent orchestra needs one good harp. But I don't want to play it for the next 60 billion years. <laughs> and besides, I've, I've got a very pale complexion. I don't look good in white nightgowns. <laughs> and puffy clouds aren't very sustaining either. I mean, if, if, is that our symbolism for heaven? Where does that come from? So let me take a few minutes to outline some of the metaphorical ways of talking about the new heaven and the new earth that you find in the Bible. Before we come to this particular one here, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where does that come from? So let me take a few minutes to, to outline some of the ways the Bible depicts the glory yet to come. Now, we, we saw one yesterday just in passing in the parable of the bags of gold. You, you remember what the master said? Well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So it's a place of great happiness, ha the happiness of the master of God himself. But it's also a place of hard work. We're, we're not going to sit around and do nothing for endless billions of years. In fact, it's going to be work that is far more important, far more significant, far harder, far more challenging, far more evocative than the work of administering billions and billions of pounds. Did, did, did you see? We're, we're going to be engaged in things. I have no idea what, but it'll be challenging work, but challenging work without corruption, without fatigue, without sin, without greed, in an ordered universe. And then, of course, there, there are the depictions of song around the throne. Have you enjoyed the singing here? What are there, a thousand of us? With all due respect to our musicians, small potatoes compared to what you find in the end of chapter 5 of the Apocalypse. Oh, then there's going to be some singing without comparison. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Boy, don't you want to be a part of that choir? Indeed, before it's introduced, we're told that the four living creatures had each one a harp. Where does that language come from? It's, it's part of what has generated the silly little cartoon diagrams where we have a big heart and that, that symbolizes heaven. You've got to understand, however, that when the Bible uses the word harp, whether in the Old Testament or the New, it doesn't think of our great big instrument. The harp was a stringed instrument that was associated with great joy. That's why, for example, when the Jews went into exile, they could write, by the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our harps. That is, they hung them up on the tree branches. Our captor said, sing us a song of Zion. How can I sing a song of Zion in a strange land? But now the new heaven and the new earth have come. So even the angels themselves take down the harps. Let's break them out. 
What instrument in your particular subculture is associated with joy and laughter and happiness? Well, it probably depends on your own cultural background. It might. There might even be a few people who associate harps, modern harps, with joy. There might be a few who actually like pipe organs. But, but how about a banjo? You know, it's really, really hard to be miserable when a really good <laughs> banjo is playing, you know? It's, it's why you don't hear a wail of a lot of banjos at funerals, you know? Because it's an instrument of joy. So stop thinking of a harp, you know, get, get rid of that and have a bunch of banjos, okay? Now you're getting closer, you're, you're getting foot-stomping banjos. Even if you're not given to that, you know, you can't do more than rather begrudgingly. But nevertheless, you, you can't help it because the, the instrument of joy is, is, is playing. And then another image, rest. In the Old Testament, the people wandered through the wilderness, through the wilderness years of trial and testing, and eventually entered the land of rest. That doesn't mean they crossed the Jordan River and all went to sleep. But rest from the desert, rest from the wilderness, rest from their trials, now with their own land and their own place. And, and so the Bible spends quite a lot of time on talking about the ultimate goal of, of entering into that rest. Reread, for example, the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. And, and we're pressing on to, to cross the Jordan River metaphorically and enter the land of rest. We recall perhaps the old Negro spiritual, I'm just a going over Jordan. I'm just a going over home. Finally getting home in the land of rest. And then, of course, there's the picture of resurrection existence in 1 Corinthians 15, all predicated on the reality of Jesus' resurrection body, Jesus' resurrection life. There were some people in the Corinthian church who had a hard job believing that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. It maybe it was just a metaphorical expression or something. Indeed, a few years ago at Easter in Perth in Western Australia, the then primate of the Anglican Church of Australia was asked on national radio if uh, his faith would be challenged if somehow they found the tomb of Jesus and everybody was sure it was the tomb of Jesus in the Middle East and lo and behold, the body was in it and the dating was right, the, the DNA was right. It, 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 it had to be Jesus himself. He, he, he hadn't really risen from the dead. What would that do to the Anglican bishop's faith? And he replied memorably, oh, it wouldn't challenge my faith at all because I believe Jesus has risen in my heart. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has a different answer. He says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, number one, all the people who saw him, about 500 of them, are a bunch of liars. Either that or they're dupes. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They watched him eat fish. Thomas handled him, and he had the stigmata. He had the wounds. There's continuity between the body that went in and the body that came out. Not only so, but you're still in your trespasses and sins. If Jesus died and he didn't rise from the dead, how on earth can you possibly believe that his sacrifice meant anything? You're still damned. You're still guilty. There's no atonement that's paid for you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's a joke. Not only so, but your faith is vain. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. You're believing something that isn't true. The Bible doesn't ask you to believe something that isn't true. It doesn't ask you to believe something that may not be true. The Bible only asks you to believe what is truth, which is why in the Bible the way you increase faith is not by yelling, believe, 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 shut up and believe, don't ask questions, just believe. That is rather the way you believe, the way you increase your faith in Scripture is by articulating and defending the truth. And then on top of all of that, Paul goes so far as to say, your life is a joke. You are of all people most to be pitied. If you believe something that isn't true and try to live out your life on the basis of it, it's not just psychologically good for you in some way, as it was for the Anglican bishop in Perth. No, 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 no. If you base your whole life on believing what is untrue, then your life's a joke. 
So all the picture of resurrection existence, our resurrection existence in 1 Corinthians 15 is predicated in the first instance on Jesus' resurrection existence. We'll have resurrection bodies. I don't know all of what that means. I do know it's going to be glorious, like His resurrection body that cannot die. You must understand that when the eternal Son of God became a human being, and lived, and suffered, and died, and rose again, and ascended. He didn't stop being a human at that point. Jesus will be the God-man for all eternity. That's why He's depicted as our older brother. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. We'll we'll, we'll have a resurrection body like His. He's the pioneer. he's, He's gone ahead. And in that kind of frame of thinking, Jesus is the older brother, the first one with this kind of resurrection body, and that's where we're heading. That's what we're going to get. Now does the new heaven and the new earth look a little better? Not only so, but there's the imagery that you get in Revelation 21 and 22. One of the things that apocalyptic literature likes to do is mix the metaphors Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What difference does it make whether there's any sea? Well, you have to remember that the ancient Israelites were were not a seafaring people. When they tried two or three times, they failed pretty miserably. They were unlike the Brits, the Brits with their endless poetry and so on regarding the sea. I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea in the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. Not the Brit, not the, not the, the Israelites. You know, read instead Isaiah 57. The wicked are like the sea which tosses up muck and mire. That, that's just not the British vision of the sea, do, 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 do you see? But, but, but it, it's, it's this vision of chaos that is bound up with the Israeli symbolism. But in those days, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no more sea. The imagery is not talking about exactly the distribution of water molecules in the new heaven and the new earth. It's saying there's the abolition of chaos and anarchy and danger and muck and mire. Then the symbolism changes. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Do you hear the mixed metaphor? A city prepared as a bride? Listen, guys, if you're about to get married and your bride is walking down the aisle and she comes and stands beside you, don't smile at her sweetly and say, you are such a beautiful city. Mixed metaphors go well in apocalyptic. They don't go well at a wedding ceremony. And then a little farther on, this city that is a bride gets married to a lamb. Now, as far as I know, I'm no biologist, but lambs don't have weddings. Do you know? They just go out in the field and do it. You have to face the fact that the metaphors are multiplying here. So this, this new creation is also a new city, and the city is a bride, and now the bride gets married to the groom, and the groom turns out to be a lamb. Now, of course, as Christians, we've, we've, we've been instructed enough in, in, in the Bible to know how the symbolism works, and each component adds something. The lamb is Christ Jesus. But that means that the Bible uses as one of its images of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like a wedding between the church and Jesus Christ. Where does that come from? But then people who know their Bibles knows there's a whole background. In the Old Testament, God presents Himself as the husband of His covenant people Israel. And that means that apostasy is, is, is portrayed from Deuteronomy on as a kind of spiritual adultery. It's betraying the beloved. The whole prophecy of Hosea turns on that image. God is presented as the ultimate 
betrayed husband, the ultimate cuckold, God Almighty the cuckold, because His people have, have betrayed Him. And then you come to the New Testament, and likewise Christ is presented as the husband of the church, so that Paul can say to the Corinthians, I, I, I have betrothed you to, to your spouse, to Christ Jesus, and you're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, do you see? So the human relationship, which is most intimate, most full of spectacular, comforting, intimate joy, is, quite frankly, sex in a good marriage. And God dares compare the new heaven and the new earth to that kind of union, the union of Christ and the church. The Bible says there will be no more physical marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. And I know that some of you who are single here trying to be faithful to Christ, to be celibate, nevertheless deep down feel left out, robbed of something. But you know what? The kind of intimacy that you can enjoy in a good marriage is nothing compared to the intimacy that we'll enjoy with Christ someday. Ten billion years into eternity, nobody's going to say to themselves, muttering under their breath, I was gypped. Did you see? So intimacy, joy, rest, work. And above all of that, listen to the negations that you get in, in the apocalypse, the things that won't be there. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Has anyone in here cried this week? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I wonder how many people in here have had miscarriages. They're broken relationships. I wonder how many have suffered cancer. My wife's a cancer survivor. My mother died of Alzheimer's. And toward the end of her nine years when there was no recognition of us or the grandchildren anymore, you take her hand and hold it and sing an old hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And you'd get a little squeeze. And then in the last six months, nothing. Nothing. But in the last day, Elizabeth, Margaret, Mabry, Carson will rise again. And there will be no more death and no more tears and no more sorrow. Because the old order of things, the text says, has passed away. And that's just the negative side of things. Imagine a universe, a new heaven and a new earth, where every single redeemed person in it loves God with heart and soul and mind and strength and their neighbors as themselves. Where everyone is seeking the other's good. And there's no greater glory than seeing the manifestation of the glory of God in the face of His Son. And then look at some more details about this city. This city is strangely designed. It's built like a cube. There's only one cube in the Old Testament. It's the most holy place. As long and as wide and as high and as deep. It's the place where the high priest could enter only once a year carrying the blood of bull and goat through the veil on the prescribed day for his sins and for the sins of the people. 
And now we're told the entire city is a cube. It's a way of saying all of God's people don't need mediators carrying bull blood. They are themselves always and forever in the very presence of God. That's why the description goes on a little farther toward the end of chapter 21. I saw no temple in that city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, always and forever in the presence of God. And then at the beginning of chapter 22, what Christians across the ages have called the visio dei, the vision of God. We see God face to face. Do you know the highest order of angels in Scripture are described as covering their faces before the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb? Even though they've never sinned, His transcendent glory, His transcendent spectacular beauty is so utterly amazing that even the highest order of angels dare not gaze on Him, but they cover their faces with their wings. But we will see Him face to face, made in the image of God, so transformed, so purified, so glorified, so prepared that we will gaze on God. And we just don't have the words or the categories even to grasp more than the tiniest glimpse of the trailing edge of the afterglow of the glory of God like Moses in Exodus 34. So great will that wonder be. Now do you want to go to heaven? Now do you want to join the church that says, yes, even so come, Lord Jesus? That's why the vision of Ezekiel the prophet ends up with a final depiction of what the new Jerusalem will be like. The Lord is there. And then amongst the images that are found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the image of the messianic banquet, the banquet of joy and pleasure when the Messiah comes. For example, Here's Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers up all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Instead of death and tears and disgrace, the banquet of God with the Messiah. And then sometimes that banquet is not just the messianic banquet, it's the wedding banquet feast. And now you're beginning to mix just a banquet with the wedding banquet, as in Isaiah 62, verses 1 to 5. For Zion's sake, Isaiah says, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication, all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, beautiful and married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young woman marries a young, wo- a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. That is a kind of union between God and, and His covenant people, do you see? Which is precisely what the messianic marriage banquet of the Lamb looks like, already prefigured in the prophecy of Isaiah almost 800 years before Christ. We used to sing. It's a hymn that is no longer sung much anymore. But we used to sing, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace. Not on the crown he wears, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory. Emmanuel's land. And now we're ready for our parable. 
because this is the parable of the wedding banquet. The narrative develops in three stages. Stage one, verses one to seven. The banquet is prepared, verses one and two. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepares a wedding banquet for his son. Now, the kingdom of heaven is likened in the parables to many different things, each of them trying to make certain points. But in this case, he sends his servants to those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refuse to come. So, the first invitations are rejected, verse 3. The second invitations are ignored, verses 4 and 5. He sent some more servants. Tell those who've been invited, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. So the first servants reject the invitation. They refuse it. The second ignore it. Some of the ones in the third place actually seize his servants, mistreat them, and kill them, verse 6. And the king's response in verse 7, the king was enraged. He, he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, if you're thinking of a modern wedding, the response of the king seems a wee bit disproportionate. So they decide to stay home. That's, that's their business, isn't it? But you're not thinking of a modern wedding here. There are two strands you've got to bear in mind to make sense of this parable. One is, this is symbol-laden language about the promised messianic banquet. These people are rejecting the invitation of the king of kings to what we would call heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. So the, 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 they're rejecting the invitation to the biggest party ever, the, the, the wonder of the union between the Son of God and His own covenant people. They refuse to come. So that in the second place, even at a sociological level, the, the, the kings of the earth in those days were not like the British monarchy, which is strictly constitutional. That is to say, there are constitutional limitations on the power of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She really has two fundamental powers, and if she tries to exert either one of them, apart from the approval and advice of her prime minister, there'll be a national crisis and there'll be another vote. And the party that's in power would come in with, with a large return. No, no, no. In the ancient world, if you were a king, you reigned. You ruled. And so there was, there was a different set of expectations between monarch and, and those who were invited to come. It's not only a privilege to come, it's, it's commanded. When, when the king invites you to come, that's not just a whichever way you want to jump on this one, come or not, as you like, you, you know, there'll be enough people that show up. The, the invitation is, in fact, a command, so that refusal to come in this social context is rejection of the king's authority. It is stiff-arming his majesty. It is saying, I am not one of your people. I'll do whatever I want. All the worse when you start beating up the messengers, for which read prophets and, and priests and and human kings and so on. We, we, we reject the Messiah when He comes too. We'll do things our own way. We don't want your banquet. And so the combination of the social anticipations of the day plus that background of language in which the ultimate glory is understood to be a messianic banquet of spectacular proportions, it means that the rejection is, is not only socially disapproved, it's it's the rejection of God, the rejection of His prophets and thus of His Word, the rejection of glory, of, of the ultimate hope of the people of God, all in favor of standing up and singing instead with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. It reminds us of what John writes in his gospel. The eternal Word came to His own people, to His own world, His own home, and His own people didn't recognize Him. Then the second stage, verses 8 to 10, 
Here there are more invitations given out. Given out to anyone on the streets, verses 8 and 9. To the bad as well as the good, verse 10. What that means is the invitations are now going out not to the covenant people, the Jews who were expected to come, but to anybody. We would think in terms of worldwide mission to men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation in, in, in line with the vision of Revelation chapter 7. Um, to everybody, both the bad and the good. That is, to those who are reputable, like uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, to those that are disreputable, like some of the tax collectors and public sinners and, and, and so on. The invitation goes out to all of them because, because the basis of their acceptance is not how good they are or how bad they are, but they come because of the king's gracious invitation. And then you come to the third stage. Ultimately, the kingdom is open to those who receive grace and the king's invitation. But in the third stage, verses 11 to 14, we come across a man without wedding clothes, verses 11 and 12. This is not just a social faux pas. You're not supposed to think, well, maybe he didn't have enough money to go and buy a decent suit. That's, that's not the point. The, the point is that if you, you come along to, to this wedding, you've been invited to it, you're expected to act appropriately. Uh, this, this is on a monarchy. This is a great honor. You, you're not likely to go and visit Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at one of her garden parties wearing tattered jeans. There are certain expectations that are expected. How much more when you come before the King of Kings himself? So, so the man is gently questioned. How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? So, so now you have people who have not rejected the invitation or have not ignored the invitation or have not beaten up the messengers who brought the invitation. Now you have people who have nominally accepted it but are in no way prepared for it, in no way, way qualified to be in, none. The man was speechless. And the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, you gain greater clarity on what this parable means when you see that it is in a sequence of three parables in Matthew. Look at them very quickly. Number one, the two sons in chapter 13, verses 28 to 32. One son is told by his father, go in the field and do such and such. And the son says, oh, gladly, sir. In those days, you did say, sir, to your father. But he doesn't go. The other one answers rather rebelliously, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I don't want to do that. Uh, you, you tell me, but I, I don't want to do it. I, I, I won't do it. But then he has second thoughts, and he goes. So then Jesus asks the rhetorical question, which of the two did what his father wanted? Verse 31, the first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, that is by calling people to repentance and by pointing out the coming Messiah, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. In other words, according to this first parable, repentance is necessary. So some people may start off saying, I won't do it. I won't bow to this authority in any way, shape, or form. But at the end of the day, the proof of the pudding is in the repentance. And those who are merely religious and say very respectfully to God, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, Jesus is Lord, amen. But who actually demonstrate no repentance in their lives, they're amongst those who prove themselves to be disobedient sons. In the first century, the, the contrast is between Pharisees and upright religious people who nominally do all the right religious things, but never do bow to the authority of Jesus and, and repent of their sins and turn to Him and trust Him, versus those who are public sinners who are busily defying God with their lives and their words, their relationships, but nevertheless are called and repent and come in and are accepted. That's the first parable. Repentance is necessary. Then in the second parable, 
the parable of the tenants, verses 43 to 44. Here there's a stark alternative. Either these tenants reject and kill all the messengers that are sent by the master to pull in the produce, and they themselves are destroyed, or, or they are given the kingdom because they do not belong to that group at all. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit, repentance, righteous living, transformation. This is why Jesus elsewhere can say, by their fruit you shall know them. And then our parable, the wedding banquet, verse 14, for many are invited, but few are chosen. In other words, what is being portrayed in all three of these banquets is that as Jesus, the promised Messiah, comes on His way to the cross, He invites people to come. He invites His own fellow Jews. And so many, so very many of them have the nominal structures of religion in their lives, but no real repentance and faith, no humility, no contrition of sin, no real understanding that this Messiah comes and takes our sin in His own body on the tree that opens up the way for us and makes us acceptable before God. No, they, they can say yes sir, yes sir, yes sir to God, but in a sense they're entirely alien to Him. There's no sign of repentance. They don't do what the Word of God actually expects, demands, commands. And even some who nominally do want to come, like the man without the wedding garments, they're not prepared. They're just nominals. They come to church. They make confession of faith in some sense, but there's no sign of repentance or brokenness or contrition in their lives. And you know what they're really rejecting? They're rejecting the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're rejecting the new heaven and the new earth. How is that conceivable? The Bible speaks boldly, as we saw yesterday and heard again this morning from Richard Koken. It speaks boldly of judgment to come in order to frighten us into rethinking our position. But it also speaks boldly of the glory to come. H how is it that the Bible can speak of perfect purity, the abolition of death, seeing the glory of God, intimacy with our Creator through Christ Jesus, deep knowledge of the one who is presented as the lion lamb, the one who is the king but who suffers as a substitute lamb for us, of such transformation of our very beings that we have a resurrection body like His on the last day, and utterly pure, without death, without any consciousness of sin loving God with heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. How is it that the Bible can speak of all of those kinds of things and men and women can say, I will not believe? How is it that they can say, not important to me, we'll just ignore that rubbish? Or in some cases, actually, punish the messengers of the King of Kings. So angry are they at any voice of authority, even when that voice of authority is inviting them to the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. It's bizarre. It's, it's blind. It's self-condemning. It's vile. It's, it's empty. It's fruitless. It's hopeless. Besides being such an insult to the King of Kings. Not only should the Bible's pictures of the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness, draw Christians there so that they want to invest in the life to come, it should also draw broken men and women in this life who know that they cannot make sense of this life or find freedom or hope or escape or forgiveness or eternal life 
apart from the command of Christ to come. Let us bow in prayer. Make us, we pray, homesick for heaven. Enable us to see how the cynicism of this world is so self-condemning and so fruitless. We remember the words of the poet, when Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, red were his wounds and deep, for those were crude and cruel days and human life was cheap. When Jesus came to London town, they simply passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him, they only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. As Jesus wept over Jerusalem, so, doubtless, he weeps over London. O Lord God, have mercy upon us and grant that some here who have not yet closed with Jesus Christ may, even where they sit, cry in their hearts, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And for all of us, Lord God, grant such an eternal perspective that we see this world is not our home and we join the church in every generation by crying, even so come, Lord Jesus, not as a mode of escapism, but as preparation for service in our local churches through commission, through every avenue that you open before us, while we confess with praise, Jesus is Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Commission Podcast. We'll have more from the archives and upcoming podcasts. But to find out about this year's Revive, check Next out week, a conversation about church planting with two of our pioneer church planters and director of church planting for Commission, Richard Perkins. <laughs>